Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief, chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with the Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let me begin by asking you a question. If you'd have asked yourself 18 months ago, what do you want to achieve in 2020? I wonder what you'd have said. Maybe you had career aspirations. Maybe there were some sort of fitness goals that you had, or maybe home improvements, or maybe you wanted to spend a bit more time at home. Little did we know. I think it's fair to say that this has not been the year that we were expecting, and perhaps most of us have not achieved all the things that we would have liked to achieve. And for many of us, that's been quite difficult. But actually, I think there is a positive. We live in a culture which is fixated on what we achieve. We're measured by what we do. Well, perhaps this year, more than any other year, the gospel should seem even sweeter than ever. You see, at the heart of the gospel is the idea that we are saved not by what we achieve for ourselves, but by what has been achieved for us. 
As we explore today's passage, I've got three points for you. So firstly, we're going to compare two trials. Secondly, we're going to ask what changed for Peter? And thirdly, when are we like Peter? So over the past few weeks, we've been reading our way through the final chapters of Matthew's gospel. And a significant chunk of the book is taken up with the final days of Jesus' life. That's because Matthew wants us to see, even in the structure of his book, that Jesus did not primarily come as a teacher or as a good example, but he came as someone who was going to die in the place of sinners on the cross. Throughout chapter 26, there is a growing sense of darkness in the chapter. As I read it, I'm often reminded of the film Saving Private Ryan. It's one of my favourite films. And yet at the same time, part of me really doesn't enjoy watching it. The opening scene is of the Allied troops landing on the beaches on D-Day at Dunkirk. The thing is, it is brutal. It's horrific and it's terrifying. And that very much sets the mood for the rest of the film. One of the final scenes in the film is at Ramel in France, where a small group of Allied troops have been tasked with holding a bridge from an onslaught of German attack, which is just around the corner. The thing is, there's not enough of them and they don't have enough equipment. The men know that staying there to protect that bridge is very likely a decision which is going to cost them their lives. There's this great scene where they've made all the preparations, they've sorted out a plan and they've decided what they can do. But now all they can do is wait, wait for the Germans to arrive. As they're waiting, they're listening to music and they're exchanging stories and it feels almost lighthearted. But look into any of the men's eyes and you will see a fear. A fear of something which is coming, something unavoidable, something they'd love to be able to avoid but know that they can't. Well, this is very much the mood that Matthew paints in chapter 26. We've seen that disciples celebrate Passover together with Jesus, but even as he's telling them that he is going to introduce a new hope like nothing they've ever seen before, he adds that this hope is going to be brought by the spilling of his blood. They go from this meal to an olive garden where this darkness continues to build. Jesus says in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He asks his three closest friends to stay with him in this hour of need. But as night draws on, they all fail him and they all fall asleep. Jesus is then betrayed by Judas and taken into custody in the dead of night. Verse 56 tells us, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now, in the verses that follow, Matthew shows us not just one, but two court cases. He puts them side by side to highlight that in the first, Jesus is faithful. And in the second, Peter is unfaithful. In verse 57, we see Jesus before the high priest, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now, in my last job, we used to hold a fines club, which was hilarious, but it was also pretty brutal. At the beginning of each shift, we'd start by dishing out fines for any mistakes that were made on the previous shift. They could be anything from not answering the radio quick enough to losing someone in a vehicle pursuit. But if you wanted to contest an accusation, you could, you could take it to court. Now, some of my best memories of policing were crying with laughter at seven o'clock in the morning, watching people try to defend themselves. But really, there was absolutely no point. 
We used to have a book which recorded the fines that went in it. And on the cover of the book, it even said in bold letters, it's not supposed to be fair. And it wasn't. I once got fined because I swapped my lanyard for a different one. So the next shift, I turned up with my usual lanyard and then I got fined for being weak. I'm sure you can imagine the quandary I was in before I showed up to work the next day. It was a no-win situation, and that's much like how Matthew points the trial that Jesus has just found himself in. Look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. After some false starts, they eventually managed to find two witnesses who claim in verse 62, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, this is a very serious allegation for two reasons. Firstly, the temple was the symbolic heart of the Jewish people. To do anything or even say anything against it was an unthinkable act of sacrilege for a Jew. Secondly, the men in the room knew their Bible inside out. And a combination of known passages in Ezekiel and Zechariah led them to conclude that the destruction of the temple and the replacement of it with a new perfect one was something which would be pro- which was something which would be achieved by the promised Messiah. Now, Jesus refuses to answer this allegation and the high priest is now beside himself. In verse 63, you can almost hear not only the indignation, but also the sarcasm. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Are you telling me you, a carpenter from Nazareth, you followed by a bunch of misfits, fishermen and tax collectors, you who were abandoned You who are powerless before me, are you the Messiah? Jesus responds in verse 64, you have said so. Jesus is saying what you're saying is true. He is confirming the accusation. This is made clear from what he continues to say in the rest of verse 64. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a reference to both Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110, both passages which point to the coming Messiah. Now, the irony shouldn't be missed here. The one who sits at the right hand of God and has all authority is allowing himself to be judged wrongly and unfairly by sinful men so that he can rescue his people. The man who has just been labelled as a blasphemer is the Lord. In verse 67, we see something unbelievable. Man spits in the face of God. Jesus is slapped and punched and mocked. And yet he remains silent, refusing to defend himself. He does this because he loves his father and he loves the ones he's been sent to rescue. He knows that this is the only way to bring redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He has a choice. He can defend himself or he can defend his people. And in an incredible act of love, he chooses to put his people first and remain silent. Have you ever felt like you've sinned one too many times, like you've messed up and let Jesus down again, brought dishonour to him in whatever you have or have not done? Sometimes I feel like Jesus is ready to wash his hands with me. 
But here we see that Jesus will finish what he has started. That even when mankind spit in his face, he will not give up on his people. He remains faithful to save the unfaithful. And what about his closest disciple, his disciple who only hours earlier said to Jesus, even if everybody else abandons you, I never will. How does Peter hold up? Well, verse 58 doesn't paint a promising start. It says, but Peter followed at a distance. He stops at a courtyard outside where the trial is taking place, where he sits to see what will happen. Whilst he's waiting, a servant girl comes up to him and in verse 69, she says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Do you notice it's not even a question? It's just a statement of fact. And actually, it appears quite innocent. But Peter flatly denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. Clearly, this rattles him because he gets up and he moves to the gateway where another servant girl but this time she doesn't ask him directly. Look at verse 71. She looks at those around her and says, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denies it again, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. They leave him alone for a little while, but then several of them come back to him and say, come on, your accent gives you away. I mean, it's the equivalent of Dave Greenhill trying to convince you he grew up in Epsom. I'm not being funny, mate, but you don't sound like you're from around these parts. Peter is now full of fear. He doesn't really know what the group will do if he confirms he's a disciple of Jesus, but he's got no intention of staying to find out. In verse 74, he calls down curses and swears to them. I don't know the man. And then it happens. A cock crows and Peter remembers what Jesus said to him only hours earlier. Verse 75, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. I don't think there is a better word here to describe how Peter feels than broken. He may have been impulsive. He may have been a bit slow to understand, but in his mind, at least, surely Jesus had chosen him because of how faithful he was, how brave he was. But now he doesn't even have that. When men came armed with swords and clubs, he was ready to fight with Jesus. But when faced with questions from a servant girl who were probably just being curious, he crumbled spectacularly. We've seen two trials. Jesus, whose life is on the line and yet stands firm against the highest authorities in the land. Peter, who is in danger of probably nothing more than embarrassment, gives way before some of the lowest people in the land. Jesus is put under oath to speak the truth about himself, which he does. Peter calls down oaths on himself to deny the truth. Jesus is falsely accused of blasphemy. Peter blasphemes by calling down curses. Peter has completely turned his back on Jesus and runs away weeping bitter, bitterly. Incredibly, though, and as Stephen reminded us just a few minutes ago, this is the same man who goes on to become a key figure in the formation of the early church and wrote two really important letters in the Bible. He dedicates his life to Jesus and was eventually killed for his faith. Now, all this leads to our second point. What changed for Peter? What caused the man who crumbled before some servant girls 
to go on and live boldly for Jesus and eventually stand firm before the Roman authorities, even when faced with the prospect of his own crucifixion. There are two key things that changed. Firstly, Peter received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We can't underestimate how important that was. But secondly, Peter finally understood not only who Jesus was, but why he had come. You see, up to this point, Peter had seen who Jesus was, but crucially, he still didn't really understand why Jesus had come. Peter saw that Jesus was great and worthy of praise, and he knew he'd come to rescue his people, but he still thought that meant rescue from earthly powers. He failed to see that Jesus had come for something far more important, to rescue his people from sin and death by dying in their place. Ultimately, Peter wanted Jesus to get on board with his plans of overthrowing the Romans. And up to that point, Peter had followed Jesus closely. But it seems that in the garden, there was an olive, there was a fork in the road. Where Jesus is going and where Peter wants Jesus to go is no longer the same place. When Peter realises the road Jesus has plotted ahead means victory through weakness and submission, even through death on a cross, the wind is completely knocked out of his sails. Peter is now only able to follow Jesus at a distance. And when even the smallest opposition arises, he is ready to turn his back completely. Peter's failure was not just a lack of courage. It was a lack of understanding. He knew who Jesus was, but he was unfaithful because he didn't really understand why Jesus had come. Now, the danger is we can simply write this off as, oh, that's just Peter being Peter. But actually, I'm just like him and probably so are you. So let's look at point three. How are we like Peter? So firstly, I'll follow Jesus as long as he's going in the right direction. When Jesus was allowing himself to be taken prisoner and Peter was flailing the sword around, Peter was really say, was really saying, I know better, Jesus. This isn't what I want to happen. I know best. But of course, Peter doesn't know best. Jesus knew that it had to happen, that it was the only way that our biggest problem, our sin, could be dealt with. He knew that the cross would be a dark day, but he also knew that out of darkness, his father was able to bring forth glorious light and hope and the forgiveness of sins for all who would trust in Jesus. When God leads me somewhere that is hard or into something that I don't want, my reaction is often to doubt him and try and take back control, to say, no, no, I know best when really I should be looking to the cross to see that he knows best. He's in control and he is good. He knows what I need more than I do. The courage to follow Jesus comes not just from knowing who he is, but from knowing what he's done for us. A few of us at church have been reading through some material on church history. And last month, we heard about the Franks becoming Christians in about 500 AD. When the soldiers were baptised, they held their right hand out of the water. They wanted forgiveness and they were willing to submit to Jesus, but parts of them were off limits. For them, it was their fighting arm. Did you metaphorically hold anything out of the water when you were baptised? 
maybe your wallet, maybe a relationship or a sinful habit. Maybe your expectations about the future. I'll follow Jesus as long as I always have a nice house and a good pension pot, or as long as it doesn't affect my children's education, and as long as I can get at least one foreign holiday a year. Like Peter, we may be able to follow Jesus for some time without this being an issue, but at some point in our lives, there will be a fork in the road. Are we prepared to follow him wherever he leads, trusting that he knows best? This is what is so evident in Peter's life after the resurrection. He doesn't just follow Jesus because he has to, but because he wants to. Because he's seen firsthand that Jesus offers what can be found nowhere else. What he later describes in one of his letters as an inexpressible and glorious joy. Secondly, I make it all about what I do. Like Peter, when I fail to understand what Jesus has done for me, I make it about what I do. I think that my relationship is based on what I do for him. I feel I need to earn his acceptance. This means that I swing back and forth between feeling proud when I feel like I'm meeting his standards and looking down on those who I think aren't meeting them. And then when I'm not meeting those standards, I feel broken and I resent anyone who's doing better than me. Deep down, I just want to do the bare minimum I can to get into heaven. However, when I realise that actually following Jesus is all about what he's done for me, it changes all this. My obedience isn't then to earn anything, but it's a response, a response to the fact I've already been accepted. Now, instead of my identity swinging back and forth between feeling, feeling proud and feeling broken, I know the humble joy that comes from realising that actually I don't meet the standard, but that's okay because I'm loved and accepted by the one who met it for me, the one who bore my punishment. I know that I don't have to fear the future because my future is in the hands of the one who is faithful, even whilst I am unfaithful. Thirdly, my prayer life becomes all about me. A good measure of whether I'm really following Jesus or asking him to follow me is examining my prayer life. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray and it begins by praising God and asking that his will would be done, not ours, his. (laughs) Does that reflect your prayer life? Because often it doesn't mine. I play lip service to praise and thanksgiving and then just get out the list of things that I want. I just see Jesus as a means of getting what I really want, a comfortable, easy life. And my prayer life only ever really heats up when that is threatened. However, when I see that God really does know best, when I remember that he is faithful when I am unfaithful, I feel like thanking him. When I remember that Christ did not defend himself so that he could defend me, It makes me feel like praising him and it reminds me that his way is the best. I want to finish by considering one last question. Why is this story included? Why include the biggest failure of one of the most significant men in the formation of the early church? All four Gospels include include this awful moment of failure from Peter. Why would they include that? 
Surely Peter would have had more credibility if this encounter had been scrubbed from the record. Unless Peter's strength was not the foundation of the early church, but instead God's faithfulness was. You see, that's the fundamental thing the church is built on, not in the strength of its human leaders, but on the fact that Christ was faithful when even the very best of us were unfaithful. I began by mentioning the film Saving Private Ryan. Many have said it's a powerful illustration of the gospel. Captain Miller and most of his men die in a heroic effort to rescue just one man, Private Ryan. But here's where it falls down. In a heartbreaking scene at the end of the film, Miller is mortally injured and Ryan holds him in his arms as he dies. With his final breath, he pulls Ryan close and he splutters, James, earn this, earn it. The next scene fast forwards 60 years to where Private Ryan is visiting the grave of Captain Miller. He is overcome with emotion and he collapses. His wife rushes to comfort him and with tears streaming down his cheeks, he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. The weight of his rescue has crushed Private Ryan. And if we try and earn our rescue from Jesus, it will crush us even more. Matthew's comparison of Jesus's faithfulness and Peter's failure is not not included to guilt us into obedience, but instead to lead us to rejoice that our salvation does not come from our own performance, but from the one who succeeded where we have failed. The one who who did not defend himself so that he could defend us. The one who died so that we could live. Understanding this is what changed Peter from a broken man to a faithful servant. Will you remain a faithful servant because you know that, first of all, Jesus came as your servant? Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. Thank you so much for coming. We're really glad that you're here with us. But I want to ask you a question. Will you avoid making the mistake that we see in this passage? Will you give Jesus a fair trial? Will you examine the evidence? The Jewish leaders didn't actually want to hear any real evidence. They'd already made their minds up. They passed their judgment on him, ignoring his claim that one day he would come back with all authority and then it would be him judging them. Don't leave it till it's too late. Take the time now to investigate the best news that's ever been told. A faithful God who dies in the place of an unfaithful people.